talked about running away from himself and he's trying to achieve himself in a lot of ways. He's battling himself. And so if he is reincarnated, it feels like he's just going to keep going in a, in a, another circle or, you know, what Govinda calls the spiral moving up, but it, all the same, like it's, it feels like a circle to him. It doesn't achieve what he needs as a person. Good endings is when at least uh, or, or good endings for heroes journey is when uh, is when the hero does come back, go back to the beginning or the place of familiarity with something changing. They, they found it might not have been a change they started looking for, but they found a change and uh, they recognize it as part of them now. Hello everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Ali and Colin about Hermann Hesse's novel Siddhartha. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional writing prompt that will hopefully help you get into your protagonist's head. To begin, as we always do, with a quote about reading or writing. Today's quote is by Hermann Hesse himself who once wrote, Without words, without writing, and without books, there would be no history. There would be no concept of humanity. Which is such a wonderful thing to say, I'll let it stand on its own. I think it speaks for itself. Siddhartha, I think, is one of the great books of humanity. And for more about what makes it so great, let's go into that discussion between me and Ali and Colin. Hi, Colin. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. And I see Ali is here. Hi, Ali. Hey. How are you? Good. I really appreciate you being willing to meet early on a Monday morning in the COVID hurricane to talk about this weird book, old book, maybe not the most dazzling of books. I don't know. I'm curious to see how you guys thought about it. I, really, I just really appreciate, I just wanted to say thank you for being willing to do this. Um, you know, thank you for having a good attitude and for carving some time out of your lives, very hectic lives, uh, to chat about this. I really appreciate it. So I have like a, a very informal list of things we could talk about. And, and this list is by no means, this is not like my wish list. If you guys would both rather talk about other stuff, I would encourage you to bring that up. I would also encourage both of you to ask me questions. I keep saying that to people, you know, in the in the lead-ups to these chats, but no one's really taken me up on it. I don't know why. You can ask me questions about anything. I just don't want this to seem like me, like an interview or a one-way street. You know what I mean? So if there are questions you have about writing in general, they don't even have to be questions about the book. These recordings are meant to supplement, um, they're meant to be what I hope is a kind of better version of Zoom. I don't know if they're fulfilling that purpose exactly. Um, so if you have any questions about the course or about writing, how to be a writer, or you know, feel free to interject those whenever you want to in the conversation. Of course, if you have questions about the book, you can ask me. I have some very broad, like I said, this is not a wish list, and I won't insist that we go here if you'd rather go elsewhere. But I thought one possible topic of conversation is to follow up a little bit about the hero's journey and talk about how this book may or may not fit onto that model of plot. There's another model of plot that is not based on the hero's journey, but involves tensions or oppositions between opposite poles. 
And we could talk about the way in which Siddhartha as a character or the book Siddhartha is the structure of the book is kind of based on this model of tension. So it's Siddhartha versus this becomes Siddhartha versus that. And these tensions keep shifting. We can talk about that. We can talk about dialogue. I'm a little bit curious about, I mean, not curious about, interested in the way in which this book seems kind of like a fairy tale. And I don't, I don't really have, I th- I've been thinking a lot about this and it's hard to talk about exactly, but it's not a book like other books. It's very, I don't know what to say about it scanty on the details that's not quite right either but you know what i mean it has a very fa- fairy tale and allegorical impression i uh, this is we're, we're, we're emphasizing the first half so that um yeah i'm not forcing you to read even more ahead of schedule you're already having to read a little bit ahead of schedule but so i just i, I want to say also that like you can talk about any aspect of the book that you've read up until the very last page that you've finished it. We don't have to like mathematize the book into an exact half and limit everything we say to the first half. So feel free to go wherever you want, but I'll just ask if you are liking the book and I kind of hope you are, what, what so far are you liking about it? I guess I can spout out words. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so what am I liking so far about the book? Well, what I'm liking so far about the book is that I have a, naturally forced it into the, uh, the, the love it schedule, which is, uh, I try to read it when I have a uh, time available and then I read it a little bit more slowly so I can understand what's going on. I suppose compared to other fiction, uh, books that we have, uh, read this semester, that being only one, the old man of the sea is that, uh, I, the dialogue makes much more sense than the old man in the sea. It flows okay. a little bit easier for me. The, the little dialogue that does exist. That's very interesting. And I want to talk more about dialogue. So I'm going to hear from Ali first, but I'll ask you eventually at some point in this conversation to elaborate on the dialogue, Colin, and, and why maybe the old man in the sea felt trickier than this. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. But Ali, what are you loving about the book so far? Something that's really popped out for me is the general style of it, which is such a big thing to say. But I have been amazed by the way that um, that has describes... Siddhartha's, uh, Siddhartha, sorry, his point of view. He doesn't really, like, kind of like you said before, he doesn't really describe, like, places or, like, he describes people a little bit. Like, there, there is description, but it's not the main thing that he talks about. In fact, he, he kind of stays in Siddhartha's head. And so he describes the way that Siddhartha thinks and, like, the, the process that he goes through when meditating upon things. And that's kind of an amazing thing to me because I've never tried to right in that style i feel that's actually very difficult for me yeah yeah i mean if we wanted to get technical and maybe we don't i don't know but i feel like sometimes i should at least attempt to earn my salary as a teacher of writing but it's a te- it's technically third person narration right so it's not i siddhartha narrating the book but it's he siddhartha he went there and he said that but you're absolutely right ali to say that it's a kind of limited third person where the camera is on siddhartha's shoulder we're not in his mind but Sometimes the the line between shoulder and mind, if this metaphor is getting too annoying, is very blurred, right? We are a lot of the time kind of hearing a narration that sounds like it's Siddhartha himself thinking. And Hesse weaves in and out of this third person limited and what seems to be, I mean, this is called, I think, free indirect discourse. This is a Googleable term. It's kind of an annoying, ugly term to describe this method of using third-person narration, but in a way that sounds like the narrator, whoever this omniscient narrator is, is somehow able to read the mind of the character. 
and Hesse does this really well. And it does make the book seem, maybe that is one of the things that makes the book seem like a fairy tale. But yeah, Ali, I think you're right to comment on the style of like, I've thought about this all weekend and I feel like I've failed coming up with an appropriate way to describe this. But do either of you have anything more to say about the way in which this book feels like a fairy tale or an allegory or a parable? It doesn't really feel real in the same sense that the old man in the sea did. Certainly not in the sense that David Foster Wallace did. We're not given a place exactly. I mean, somewhere in India sometime long ago, I guess. But even then, it's very hazy. And it's a very, like, once upon a time, there was a boy named Siddhartha. You know, it even has that very innocent tone of a fairy tale. Do you guys want to say anything about this? Do you like this? Do you hate it? Is this something that one would want to aspire to now? Or is, does it seem kind of old-fashioned? I like it. I... Yeah, I definitely noticed the same thing and have been have been thinking about it a lot. I, I'm trying to figure out what it is that makes it feel like that because there are a lot of characters, kind of, you know, people that keep coming back. That's true. So it's not, I, yeah, I don't know. I do enjoy it though. I feel like that type of fable sort of feeling has a has a a good place among literature. It is difficult to read. It's made it kind of an interesting read for me or not so difficult as just you know kind of out of the out of the norm I guess yeah that's true what about you Colin any thoughts about this um and perhaps it's probably why I'm more used to it than other things because perhaps I read uh usually the books I read when I was growing up were always third person I never really read the first person things and so a lot of in the head or in the head feeling things are kind of what I uh read but trying to uh, now the words are escaping me yeah, um, i do <laughs> i mean I'll, I'll definitely say this like i i will i will agree with what ali has said so we'll just do so we'll just say all right i'm just here's here's ali part two okay next thing. no <laughs> it, it is definitely a a different kind of read and if i uh remember from because i i was one of those odd people who read the introduction it, it's been translated oh. many times has it not yeah yeah a lot and I find it interesting, uh, well, particularly when you go to the poems in the uh, in Siddhartha. But like, just it, it probably is difficult to read because of translation, just translation in general. But it doesn't sound. It sounds like a fairy tale, and I wonder if that's a risky thing to do. Like, I mean, maybe to give people listening. I mean, people listening have read this, so. But just to remind them, I mean, I'll just read the first little bit. So this is the opening sentence. In the shadow of the house, in the sunshine of the riverbank by the boats, in the shadow of the sal tree forest, in the shadow of the fig trees, Siddhartha grew up, the handsome son of the Brahmin, the young falcon together with Govinda, his friend, the Brahmin's son. Sunshine tanned his fair shoulders at the riverbank when he bathed, during the holy ablutions, during the holy sacrifices. Shadow flowed into his dark eyes in the mango grove during his boyish games while his mother sang during the holy sacrifices when he was taught by his father, the learned man, when he conversed with the sages. For some time now, Siddhartha had taken part in the conversations of the sages, had practiced oratorical contests with Govinda, had practiced with Govinda the art of contemplation, the duty of total concentration, etc., etc. We we don't begin in medias race. I mean... Lots of novels begin in medias race, which is another fancy term to describe in the middle of things, in the middle of the action. So novels will often begin in a scene, in the middle of a scene or in the middle of the plot, in the middle of a story. You know, you can think about Star Wars 
you know, to, to geek out for a minute here. What is that one? A New Hope episode four, I guess, technically. So the first movie they make is technically the middle of the story. You know, the old man in the sea is technically the middle of the story because the backstory is important. 84 days without a fish. You know, that's kind of important. So there's a whole bunch that happens before the first page that matters, that informs what's happening on the first page. So maybe the fact that this is literally like once upon a time in a mango grove, a boy grew up, you know, there's no, and maybe that's what's giving us this sense of fairy taleness, the sense of the way that this plot or narrative or story is structured differently, or the whole tone of it is different. I also feel like maybe a little bit, it's like the, the sentence structure, okay, which is a weird thing to liken that to, but in fairy tales, I feel like it does have the same kind of how do you say that? Like, like kind of flowy, yeah. like never ending sentences that have a lot of commas and a lot of things added on. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about the description of Siddhartha on the, but the, the very next page. Um, and he, you know, it talks about how he has the, the perfect propriety of his movements, all, all of the stuff that it describes. And it, it is, it's the same style. It's like leading you on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it's just, it, it kind of just piles on this yeah. description, I guess. And it moves quite fast. The Old Man in the Sea didn't necessarily move slowly, but it's like almost at every page or every other page, Siddhartha is moving on or doing something different. Do you know what I mean? Like page one, oh, his life is good. Page two, but he was dissatisfied. Page three, he's saying to his father, I'm leaving. Page four, he joins the Samanas. Page four, sorry, page five, he's kind of dissatisfied with the Samanas. So doesn't it have this kind of quick much quicker pace. It's, it's, it's structured in a way that's a lot of exposition and a really fast pace so that we can get the life of a whole, so that we can get the story of a whole life in about a 70 page novella. That might be one contributing factor. Any downside to this approach? Like, and if you didn't like it, I don't want you to pretend like you did. Like, is this boring in any way? Does it not appeal to you in certain ways? If you choose to write a story in this mode, since this is a writing class, can we think of what you risk if you take this approach? Hmm. Uh, when I think about uh, taking uh, this approach in writing things, I think it's one of those, um, it depends on uh, the context of uh, what you're writing for, because given, you know, Siddhartha trying to, you know, find, find some inner, tr- on this like path of finding an inner truth, and he's going through all the wisest people he knows to try to find this truth, the kind of, or particularly like look at some of how how the conversation throws i say uh this approach probably works best on those more spiritualist or inner inner thought stories like this writing style just could not work in say uh if you're trying to describe uh i mean if we're going to take a geek approach if say you want to describe the <laughs> battle at minas tirith it just would not work wait is that from lord of the rings yeah yeah. Okay. Lord of the right. Rings. If you want to describe battles in Lord of the Rings or any other uh, novel where there is like where there is fantasy combat or whatever, it, this just would not work in a combat setting. Um, okay. Unless you want the person to really just describe how they're meditating in the middle in the thick of uh, high energy situations, which is a little hard, which would be hard to understand. But I think this writing style can just works in this situation because it is 
I don't know, just one of those, or at least with some conversations or, or the dialogue, it just, it feels like it can fit because it moves as one of those trying to look inwardly. The the outside, like, as Siddhartha mentioned a lot, at least early, when he was with um, the Samanas, just having all the external stuff is unimportant. All this extra yeah. uh, stuff is unimportant. So it, it, it tries to eliminate as much unimportance as possible to focus on what is leading to... Uh, what me finding the answer oh that's that's a really great thing so it's almost as if uh, this came up in a previous podcast maybe it was hemingway uh where the style matches the substance or the style matches the content right so it sounds like you're making a similar claim here colin where the path of siddhartha's growth as a character is a path of whittling away what's unimportant and so similarly, this plot has, has, or the style of writing has done that too. The book has whittled away everything that's unimportant. So we don't get a frame by frame story of his life. We get this like very fast pace. And then he went to the Samanas and then he went there and then he went there and then he met Kamala and then, right, in order to give us only what's important in the narrative. And another important point you make is that, yes, I think this is a good way to write if the fundamental tension or drama of your story is internal, as you say. It couldn't really work if you were writing something that was higher in action or that had a lot of external drama. The drama is highly internalized here. And therefore, yeah, it can sound very fairy tale esque There must be a better word. And superficial sounds bad. It can sound very simple, simplistic, I guess in a good way, parable-esque. You know, it can sound very parable-esque. I do want to talk about dialogue, but we're hovering over the beginning and I can't, I, I don't want to leave the beginning. So I want to ask you guys also about the hero's journey. We've talked about the hero's journey a little bit and I don't want to pretend like it's the only way to think about writing a plot because it's not. And that's why I said that maybe we could talk about tensions too. But the hero's journey is so universal and so ubiquitous that I think it is important to dwell on for a little bit. So you remember that circle diagram of the hero's journey and there's the known world at the top and then there's something that instigates the hero leaving the known world. And, you know, this is called sometimes a call to adventure. And I'm very interested in this book. One of my favorite things about it is how strange the call to adventure is. So let me just read this, the relevant bit here. This is on page two. So right at the top of page two, we learn all about how wonderful Siddhartha is and how handsome he is and how smart he is and how dutiful he is and how great his parents are. Love stirred in the hearts of the young Brahmin daughters whenever Siddhartha passed through the lanes of the town, etc., etc. But more than, but than by all of these, he was loved by Govinda, his friend. He loved Siddhartha's eyes, etc., etc. Siddhartha had the best parents, you know. Thus did everyone love Siddhartha. He gave joy to all. He was a pleasure to all. You think, okay, well, this can't be, something has to start a story. This isn't a story yet. You know, there has to be some problem. Keep this in mind when you're writing your own plots that I talked about this in the Hemingway podcast where the character has to have a desire and there has to be something getting in the way of achieving that desire. So the next paragraph, we don't have to wait long, introduces this problem. But he, Siddhartha, did not give himself joy. He was no pleasure to himself. Strolling on the pinkish walks of the fig orchard, sitting in the bluish shade of the grove of contemplation, washing his limbs in the daily expiatory bath, sacrificing in the deep shade of the mango forest with gestures of perfect propriety, loved by all, the joy of all. Nevertheless, he bore no joy in his heart. Dreams came to him. 
and uneasy thoughts flowing to him from the water of the river, sparkling from the night stars, molten in the rays of the sun. Dreams came to him, and restlessness of the soul, smoking to him out of the sacrifices, uttered from the verses of the Rig Veda, trickling from the teachings of the old Brahmins. And then the next paragraphs go on to describe what exactly this restless, restlessness of soul is. I have a couple questions. How would you two describe this restlessness of soul in Siddhartha's case? What characterizes it? What exactly makes him restless? And I also want to know, like, l- let's make this personal. Have either of you ever felt something similar? Right. And I feel like it changes throughout the story, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, at the beginning here, I, I I was nodding a lot because I really, I do feel like I've been connected with this character. That's um, good. But that um, beginning part where it talks about how everything was, you know, grand and perfect. I feel like looking back on my childhood, like I had some interesting stuff happen to me, I guess, but everything was pretty easy. Like I did, I had a good family setting, like good parents. And I've talked to some other uh, members of the church about this and they, they feel like they've had that kind of same, you know, lifestyle where it's like, you know, we have difficult stuff happen to us, but things are good. Generally we are loved. We're taken care of. Um, and we're pretty happy, but that doesn't change the fact that we still need to grow and change and learn. Um, and so when it moves into that, that next part where he says he did not give himself joy, you know, he, he wasn't receiving that, that moving forward that he wanted. I, I really felt that I was like, oh my gosh, that wasn't something that I felt like I received until I made a choice of my own to go on a mission or to yeah, to, to go to college, you know, that that's what it requires sometimes. And so I could kind of see where it was going a little bit, but I really felt a relation to that. And that's that great. What about you, Colin? Yeah, I can, the, the relationship with, uh, with, with Siddhartha, I can kind of uh, relate them there and to kind of add what, what Ali said, kind of says like growing up, you know, life was like, was a little bit easy. And I guess uh, on some level it was one of those, he had gained the knowledge he, he had wanted with the Brahmins and wanted to move on to the Samanas. And I'm thinking about it. Uh, given that we are all college students, I, I, I think something we've all realized is, uh, so the thing about going through high school is, is high school is easy compared to B, BYU. It's just easy. I remember, uh, I guess, similar to Siddhartha, you go to high school, but it's not super satisfactory because like, well, I know that there's obviously something, I know there's something after this. There's definitely more knowledge I can get than even the highest AP class I can get here at high school. Well, then again, I'm from Missouri, so my high school does, doesn't offer too many things beyond. I don't know what it's like for the, the more wealthier high schools. I don't know if, if that's the term, but sure, yeah, no, right. in my high school, the knowledge I could get was limited. And so I had an uh, so I had a dissatisfaction or a or a pull towards going to somewhere more. And so like Siddhartha, it's pretty much you tell your family, I'm going to leave to this one place to to gain further enlightenment. In, my, in Siddhartha's case, it was the Samanas. In my case, uh, BYU. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then you... Uh, leave yes. your family behind and you leave and you live a life where you uh, have no food and you <laughs> no, uh, no, that's right no this is, these are all good parallels uh, I mean, you're joking and it's funny but no that's like the, the parallels are kind of spooky 
uh, yeah, it's a really interesting parallel to be like BYU is my time with this. Though I, I am enjoying my time time at BYU, it's not like I'm going to turn them away for what Siddhartha turned them away turned BYU away for. But it is kind of similar. It's like I'm now I left my family who was able to keep me fed, and now I'm at BYU. And uh, food is <laughs> if you hear an opportunity for free food, you know you, you yeah you like those. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. I love this a lot. I mean, so, and I want to add my third kind of like echo onto what you say, but just to give some texture to, to, to the language here in the book. So here on the bottom of page two, yeah, this is exactly what Ali and Colin, you both are saying. He had begun to foresee that his venerable father and his other teachers, that the Brahmin sages had already imparted to him the greatest part and the best part of their wisdom, that they had already poured their abundance into his expectant vessel and the vessel was not full his mind was not satisfied, his soul was not at ease, his heart was not contented, the ablutions were good, etc., etc. So there was nothing bad technically about his life. Like this is what you both said about your family lives and high school. And we we might, I mean, we look at me desperately trying to, you know, clump myself into your generation. I'm older than you, not much older than you. Um, but, you know, close enough to you in age, I hope to say that like we, we, we probably have been part of the luckiest, wealthiest, most comfortable generation ever to have lived on the earth. And so we are Siddhartha kind of lit, writ large. We, we've grown up in this kind of prover- proverbial mango grove um, with, you know, and like Ali has said, it's important to point out that bad stuff happens to us inside this mango grove for sure. I mean, my mom died when I was a teenager and that was hard to live through, but I still, like, I still had a supportive family and, there was, I was still living, you know, in a good city and country and life didn't fall apart after that happened. You know, I still felt safe and cared for. Um, so even despite some of the worst tragedies that can befall you, 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 you still, you know, have a lot of luck and blessings in your life that it's important not to forget. And yet, I love what Colin says about this, like, he knew that you knew that there was something, it's almost as if like when you're a young adult, like barely an adult, 18 or something, you want to be pushed into something greater. You know that you haven't grown fully. So you want the world to push you into, you want the world to force you to become something greater. And we all, I think this is a kind of like an inborn desire. It's part of, human nature we 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 turn 18 i mean not literally it just doesn't happen on our 18th birthday but it's around then we think how great could i become like what could the world turn me into and you want to leave home and find out so for ali and some of us this involves going on a mission it involves coming to byu involves going to college and as good as home is you kind of have to leave it and say like mom and dad i love you but you have filled me with all of this great stuff, but the vessel that is my soul and my brain isn't full yet, you know? So you have to go out. And I love what Colin says about BYU too. Like BYU isn't the end destination either. Like the Samanas were not the end destination for Siddhartha. The four years that you're going to be at BYU are not the end destination. You know, the motto of BYU is enter to learn, go forth to serve. And I think like that's kind of what Siddhartha was doing among the Samanas, like enter to learn. He learned a lot and he admits that he learns a lot of valuable stuff, but eventually he has to say to them, now I'm done with you. And there's still another place. So it's not as if the Samanas were a wrong turn or a dead end. No, it's just 
this is a stepping, this is a whole path of stepping stones or stairs, you know, and it's just one more step. I've now rambled on. Any more thoughts about this? I like what you said there because it, it likens it to our own personal hero's journey. Like yeah. it makes it so that we're that main character and, you know, this is our plot that we're starting on. It's really interesting to think about if we think about that that would be our, our call to action. And it does, it comes from within us, which is why yeah. Siddhartha kind of connects to us. But. It, and I love it because it, as a book, I mean, it is innate and it is our call to action. And I think every human has felt this call to action or this call to adventure. But we sometimes maybe as writers think that when we're writing a story or a novel, we need a more exciting call to adventure like something more dramatic must have to happen. I'm writing a novel, so it can't just be, and then my 18-year-old protagonist wanted something more out of life, so she left home. That's not a novel, you know, that's not exciting, but I love teaching this novel because it proves that almost anything can count as that initial inciting call to adventure. It can be a completely internal call to adventure. I mean, Star Wars, we've already referred to it once. We might as well, you know, go all the way in. It's an exciting tale, I suppose. But think about Luke Skywalker. He's very Siddhartha-esque. He's living on this farm. I guess what's the worst thing about this farm? It's boring. But it's safe and it's happy and he has people who love him. But, you know, there's that famous shot of him looking out at the skyline. Like, he just knows that there's more out there. He's not finished. And he wants to, he wants to like, self-actualize. He wants to go out into the universe and self-actualize. And that's the call to adventure for, you know, one of the most famous stories ever told. So don't feel like your call to adventure for the story that you're writing needs to be. And then the protagonist's mother was murdered or, and then the protagonist won the lottery or, and then the protagonist fell in love with this dark, mysterious stranger. No, it, it can be very simple and it can be very subtle and it can be all internal. And I think if you phrase it well, I mean, there's something about the phrasing here, like, Hesse does a good job phrasing it in a way that Allie and me and Colin can think, oh, that's me. I can, I can, I know what it's like to have good teachers like giving me stuff, but not feeling that that's enough. I mean, I could have stayed in Canada and gone to college, but, and they're great colleges. It's not that like the colleges there were bad. I just felt I, part of this process for me must involve physical travel through the world. So I just wanted to like move and go and do, you know? I think that, that, that that's a, so if you phrase it well in your novel, that inherent impulse that all humans feel to go out, to leave, to find out, to see, can be a dynamic and exciting enough call to adventure. I want to talk about um, dialogue. Colin, can I ask you to elaborate about the difference in the dialogue here between this dialogue and the old man in the sea? The dialogue, I think what makes the dialogue a bit easier to understand is because it's significantly longer um, than uh, than the old man in the sea. Where the old man in the sea, every time somebody said something, it was able to fit on one or two lines max. Yeah. Uh, and, so he tr and so maybe he tried to fit too much in as short a phrase as possible, whereas this one recognizes that it has room to speak. And so you find dialogue that lasts a paragraph even um and maybe and may, perhaps for me it makes the dialogue flow seem a little bit easier because i because there there's a bit more context in the, that can be included in the dialogue beyond just uh we need the fish instead it goes a little bit further yeah. and it, it, it the dial it, it goes a bit further um based on what is currently going on um, such as when uh 
oh, his friend, how did I forget his, his friend, uh, Gautama, uh, uh, you know, yeah, when they, when his Gautama left Buddha and then looked at Siddhartha in the eye and asked, he's like, is this okay? Um, but mm. in much more words than, is this okay? <laughs> so I love what you say. So yeah, Hemingway feels very, he's imposing a lot of maybe unnecessary brevity onto his dialogue. And in that podcast, we did talk about some of the pros and some of the charm of that style. But yeah, you're right. You might not want to limit yourself in that way all the time. You want you might want characters to be able to talk for a long time. I think when you'll see this, especially when you get to the end, the ending of this book, I think is absolutely breathtaking and remarkable. It's a kind of, I'm now kind of going on a tangent here, um, just to encourage people to keep reading and to not give up on this book. It does start maybe a little bit slower than anything else we've read, maybe. Uh, it doesn't seem as exciting, but I think that you'll find the ending quite remarkable. And I think one of those reasons is because the characters are allowed, two characters are allowed to have this kind of long, yeah, more contextualized discussion in which they get to say everything that they want to say or need to say. And it's not like clipped or abridged unnecessarily. Yeah. Oh, just while Colin was talking, I brought up something. I was thinking about the comparison of the two, and I feel like with Hemingway, when it's much shorter and um, more distinct, I guess, um, that that dialogue leaves like a space for like imagining what else they're saying, you know, imagining okay. a subtext, imagining another conversation. Um, and in Siddhartha, it's they re- every character says what they mean. And that's not something that's necessarily realistic, which kind of adds on to the the fableness, the fairy tale-ness. But they they say what they mean, they say what they want to say, they get out what they they want to, they go through the process of speaking so that it it comes out right and in a good time. Um, And then they move forward. Like, it's just, it's very interesting to do that. You know, you may have solved most of the mystery here for me just in that comment about why this, yeah, we did address some of the reasons why this feels so much like a fairy tale or a fable and not like realism. It doesn't feel like realism. It might have most, I mean, maybe the biggest, if this is a pie chart, you know, why the title of the pie chart, why does Siddhartha feel like a fable and not realism? Yeah, maybe the biggest slice of pie is everybody says what they mean and all of the characters' desires are right on the surface. It hadn't really clicked to me in this way until you said that. All of the characters, and this is going to sound like a bad thing or a criticism, but there's no hidden motives in any of the characters. They say what they mean, and when they're narrated about, we the narrator tells the truth about them, and we take the narrator at his or her word. You know what I mean? So there's none of this weird, like, interpersonal subterfuge that we get in real life and that we get in the old man and the sea. Remember that scene in the old man and the sea between uh, the boy and the old man, when they're talking about the rice and the breakfast and the old man's like, I, I already ate breakfast and the boy like knows that that's a lie, but he doesn't say anything. So there's this very complicated relationship dance that they're playing. But here it's just like character A says what character A means and character B responds like, yes, I understand. It's very, again, it sounds like I'm criticizing the book, flat but it's flat in a beautiful way it's flat in the way that like medieval tapestries are flat you know what i mean or um yeah mosaics are flat beautiful kind of byzantine i don't know um dialogue so there's this wonderful almost hemingway-esque moment of dialogue on page six but it kind of corroborates points that both of you have made this is on the very the second half of page six 
Siddhartha leaving to go to the Samanas, I think. And in the last hour of the night, before the day began, he returned, stepped into the room, saw the young man standing there, looking tall and seemingly a stranger. So this is a conversation between Siddhartha and his father. Siddhartha, uh, he said, the father said, what are you waiting for? You know what for. Will you keep on standing and waiting like this until it is day, noon, and evening? I shall stand and wait. You will grow weary, Siddhartha. I shall grow weary. You will, you will fall asleep, Siddhartha. I shall not fall asleep. You will die, Siddhartha. I shall die. And you would rather die than obey your father? Siddhartha has always obeyed his father. And so you will give up your plan? Siddhartha will do what his father tells him to do. So it's this, it is kind of Hemingway-esque in the sense that it's very, a very quick and abbreviated back and forth, but maybe some of the repetition helps us keep up. Also, I wanted to make a few kind of seemingly superficial points about how to style dialogue while you're writing. I mean, notice, this is something Hemingway does too, we don't really get a lot of he saids and she saids. We don't get, I shall wait, I shall stand and wait, he said. You will grow weary, Siddhartha, he said. I shall grow weary, Siddhartha said. You will fall asleep, Siddhartha, Siddhartha's father said. Why do you think as a writer those he saids and she saids are being left off? For me, it, it um, connotates like a, a quick beat between them. So like they're okay. going back and forth, you know, you can feel that, that quick movement. I don't know. Yeah, so it helps speed up the narrative and it helps speed up the scene. That's great. I mean, I don't have like a, a store list of reasons that I'm hoping that you'll... I mean, any reaction that you have, I'm sure will be great. What about you, Colin? Well, I mean, I think he he's a... Uh, I've only ever really seen this used if it's kind of a dialogue between two characters. It becomes a little bit difficult to know who's saying what when uh, you have more than one character. And Very maybe, good. And maybe that's one dialogue approach that uh, that Hesse has used that that, uh, that allows us to go allows this to be used is that um, there's at least so uh, up to up to where I've read so far is there hasn't been dialogue between more than two people. It's always been one person talking to one person and that one person responding. There hasn't been a third party communicating in as well. Yeah. Um, and so. And so leaving out the he said, she says allows the flow to be a little bit easier since we know who's saying what, given kind Good. of the how the pattern of communication works. This is great. So as a writer, I mean, even if you're writing like a 700 page fantasy no novel, I do think that, and it's full of like this, the most complicated world building. I do still think that you don't want to put anything on the page that you don't need. You know, you want to burn away all the dross. As you want to burn away as much dross as possible when you're writing, whether you're writing something big and epic or something tiny like a haiku. I think that principle still applies. So Colin's right to say that if you don't, if it's just a conversation between two people and it's only this long, you don't need those things because it's not hard for a reader to follow along. And Ali, you're right to point out too that it, it does help speed up the scene. And I think we would get like bogged down with a whole bunch of unnecessary ver verbiage and even just like... Ver visual noise on the page, yeah? I also think another good thing to keep in mind about dialogue, and I don't have a, and maybe I should have prepared a great example from this novel before, but it's important that dialogue, one of the ways that dialogue fails, I think the most often is that it over explains. You've all watched a TV show or read a bad book in which there's dialogue that goes something like, I'm just kind of making this up on the spot, so, but you'll get the idea, something like, one character will say to another, like, oh, John, you remember when you and I met, don't you? 
that it was that day in late December and your father had just died and I was dating your cousin Julie and she was she had feelings for your friend Steve you know like people try to squeeze in all of the backstory in this very awkward dialogue so I don't have any question about that I mean it goes without saying that you shouldn't Dialogue is not the place to squeeze in that backstory. I just want to point out that neither Hemingway nor Hesse do this. Yeah. Any other generalized tips about dialogue? You're both great readers and you're both writers. Any other, any other, this isn't a Siddhartha specific question, but any other points, things to be aware of when writing dialogue that you think are important uh, to keep in mind? I guess, I guess it kind of goes with what you said about how uh, fitting as much backstory and dialogue as possible is, not pleasant to read uh -huh. and probably to write uh, maybe i could be missing there might be some people who love writing uh full dialogue but but i guess that is true the dialogue that did exist in a well both books but i'll, I'll talk about siddhartha if you let the the conversation follows what is the the current event such as when siddhartha tells his friend i'm going to the samanas and his friend is like oh okay i'll come along too but and that that's it. It doesn't even go to the backstory of well, what about the Brahmins that you had been studying with for years? He doesn't even say that. He just he moves along with the conversations like, okay, I will follow Siddhartha. Uh -huh. And so yeah, I guess I guess one of the things you can learn from dialogue uh, from both of these things is uh, make sure the dialogue covers what is what is being talked about. Um, yeah, and also I think related to that is that make sure that dialogue we're running slightly out of time. We have about nine minutes and there's one more thing I want to cover, but this is really important. Um, I once uh, had a poet tell me uh, that he never uses a word in a poem unless that word is doing, I can't remember the exact number, but it was something like four different jobs. So he means like it has a sound that he wants. It has a meaning that he wants. It has a connotation or, or allusion to something else that he wants. And that's a kind of, I don't, when I'm writing my poems, always put every single one of my words. I mean, the word and, for example, or the, or of, or but can really only do one thing, you know, most of the time. How much can you exactly ask a poor little word like that to do? But I think as a general rule, it's good to make sure that dialogue, a scene of dialogue is serving more than one purpose in a book that it's also helping to further the plot. I think this is related to your point, Colin, like they're not having pointless conversations about their breakfast. If there was a pointless conversation about their breakfast, it would also have to relate to the plot and be integral to the plot and help be helping to move the plot forward. So don't just insert a conversation of dialogue into your story just because. Make sure that it's, it's in some way either helping to characterize or helping to move the plot forward or ideally both, right? So it's doing kind of two or three things at the same time. So here, which leads me into the, maybe the last thing I wanted to cover. So here, this little kind of standoff between him and his dad, the dad is like, well, I'm not going to give you permission to leave. You're going to have to stand and wait forever. You're going to fall asleep. You're going to die. You're going to stand here until you're dead. And the father can eventually see that, oh, he, he's really determined. And yeah, He'll stand here until he gets my permission. This shows us a lot about who Siddhartha is as a person. So it's not a useless bit of dialogue to include because it helps characterize the protagonist. And it does help move the plot forward. Maybe I'm talking too much here, but I'll try to wrap up quickly and then get your guys' input on this. Another way to think about plots, all of you out there listening to this who are in the middle of trying to construct one, 
there's the hero's journey, but there's also the, the idea of tensions or opposites or opposition. So what I mean by this is you can think, let's think of some examples like that every, most people have read, like Harry Potter and the Dursleys. That the, the plot of Harry Potter opens with him being in opposition to his horrible step family. There's a real opposition there. And then he goes out of that. So there's a tension, Harry Potter versus the Dursleys. And then the next few chapters, it's Harry Potter versus Malfoy. And then the next few chapters, it's Harry Potter versus, I don't know, the rules of Hogwarts that he's in opposition with, you know, or it's Harry Potter in opposition to Snape, right? Those are kind of external oppositions or tensions. There's also internal ones. Most people have probably read or seen versions of film versions of Pride and Prejudice. Jane Austen does a wonderful job describing Elizabeth Bennet in opposition to her parents or Elizabeth Bennet in opposition to her society. And then it's Elizabeth Bennet in opposition to Mr. Darcy. And then for most of the novel, it's Elizabeth Bennet in opposition to her own pride, you know, or her own prejudices, hence the title, her own, yeah, you know, her own biases. So you can look at a plot as a evolving series of tensions and these oppositions will change throughout the novel. It won't be the same oppositions in the end of the book that started the book, but they will kind of meld into each other and change from chapter to chapter. So in this book, I promise a question is coming and I, try, I hope it'll be an open-ended question. It's not gonna be like a read my mind type question, but in this book, it's Siddhartha in opposition with the limitations of his status quo. And then it becomes Siddhartha in opposition with the asceticism of the Samanas, right? And then it becomes Siddhartha, he, he goes, we haven't talked about Kamala, which I'm really sad about. I'll have to make sure we talk more about her in the next podcast, but Kamala is a wonderful character, but he learns that a life of gratifying the senses also has its limits and isn't, he finds opposition in that life too, that it's not, it's, it's, a, it's not a dead end necessarily, but it's not maximally fulfilling. It's only a piece of a larger puzzle that he wants to keep filling in. So I'm just trying to make a long-winded point here that the oppositions continually change over this book. So here's a question. It's a question that you guys, you two are perfect to help answer because you don't actually know yet exactly how the story will end. How do you think the story will end? If it's, so far we have a story in which it's an opposition of, I'm trying to find meaning or true meaning. I'm looking for it here, no. I'm looking for it here, no. I'm looking for it here, no. How can there ever be resolution in such a plot? If you were the author of the story and you had gotten to about three quarters into it and you knew the ending was coming, what is the most plausible, the most believable, the most satisfactory, maybe the most surprising, I don't know, way to resolve this series of escalating tensions? How could a story like this possibly end? Like what could possibly satisfy Siddhartha? He has to be, I don't know, Will it end in him being reincarnated? I would be so mad if that happened. <laughs> I guess I should say, you don't want the ending of this book to be him transcending this cycle of reincarnation. Because that's what people, Buddhists, are trying to get out of, you know? Yeah. You don't want that. Yeah. And why don't you want that? Exactly that reason. Like, that's what he's been trying to escape, you know? He's been trying to find this this good ending, this good place to... That, that is, that's what he's been running from, you know? He, he talks about running away from himself, um, and he's trying to achieve himself in a lot of ways he's battling himself and so if he is 
reincarnated, he it, it almost feels like he has to run through it again, you know? And I know that's yeah. not the idea of reincarnation, but it, it does. I feel like he's just gonna, it feels like he's just gonna keep going in a, in a, another circle or, you know, what um, Govinda calls the spiral moving up, but it, all the same, like it's, it feels like a circle to him. It doesn't achieve what he needs as a person. This is very interesting. He keeps running from place to place to person to person, dissatisfied, dissatisfied. So that must be that the problem is with himself. Like there has, so maybe the, the most ideal ending must involve some kind of confrontation. He must learn to be satisfied with who he is, no matter what religious label he puts on himself or how much money he has or what he gets reincarnated as there's something yeah that he has to confront not the places he's running to but the person that's running i don't know yeah colin oh uh, well i mean i guess i can't spoil the ending but well it's not um, again, saw, like it's, <laughs> nothing you, you really too dramatic happens but yeah no it, it, it is one of those like I, i'll go off with what ali is it is unsatisfying when uh when the hero is kind of forced to go back to the beginning in such a manner where it feels like they didn't gain any, yeah. where it's just, I'm back at the beginning, but the journey, I got nothing. I, it's yeah. like, I mean, the journey, I gained knowledge, but when the goal isn't knowledge in that sense, then it's, it's dissatisfying when there isn't uh, the growth you wanted. And there's probably ways to, to certainly pull off a, an ending of a, of a story with a, with the, uh, you didn't get anything, but that's okay. But it still ends with a, with a, you have learned to be satisfied with what you had. And so good endings is when at least, uh, or, or good endings for hero's journey is when, uh, is when the hero does come back, go back to the beginning or that when the hero does come back to a, the place of familiarity with something changing. Yeah. Um, they, they found, it might not have been a change they started looking for, but they found a change and uh, they recognize it as part of them now. I will only say we have to wrap up now. I've kept you one minute over. And the last thing I'll say is maybe I'm just like totally stupid um, or I don't know, sappy and sentimental, but I've read this book a lot of times and the ending always makes me cry. It's so moving and so beautiful. It's not like this profound bit of wisdom is released. I just find it so utterly and profoundly moving deeply emotional. I don't want to build it up too much, but I hope that you will all enjoy it, both you, Ali, and Colin, and people listening. Okay, thank you both so much. I've really enjoyed this. Of course. Bye. Bye. Today's writing prompt is designed to help you First of all, to get into your protagonist's head in a more concrete way, but also to help your readers understand what thoughts and emotions and desires are fueling your protagonist. This writing prompt is based on something that Hermann Hesse does a lot of in this novel, but also that many, many novels do. There are compelling arguments that this technique was invented, or at least perfected, by Jane Austen. It is a technique that over the years has become known as free and direct discourse. This is a kind of ugly label that simply describes a special type of third-person narration that moves in and out of a character's consciousness. So this is not first-person narration. It's still third-person narration, but it's a kind of narration in which the omniscience of the narrator and the first-person subjective viewpoint of the character 
become interwoven at certain moments in certain sentences or in certain paragraphs. To give you an example of this, let me just read a few uh, sentences from this long paragraph on page three of Siddhartha. This is at the very beginning of the book when Siddhartha is thinking to himself why his life at home as a young boy is so dissatisfying. Keep in mind as I read this that this book is written in third-person narration, but there are many sentences in this paragraph that sound like Siddhartha's own words, as if Siddhartha is talking to himself. He had begun to foresee that his venerable father and his other teachers, that the Brahmin sages had already imparted to him the greatest part and the best part of their wisdom, that they had already poured their abundance into his expectant vessel, and the vessel was not full, his mind was not satisfied, his soul was not at ease, his heart was not contented. The ablutions were good, but they were water. They did not wash away sin. They did not heal the mind's thirst. They did not dispel the heart's anguish. Excellent were the sacrifices and the invocation of the gods, but was that everything? Did the sacrifices offer happiness? And what was all that talk about the gods? To whom else should one sacrifice? To whom else was reverence to be offered but to him, the only one, the Atman? And where was Atman to be found? Where did he dwell? Where did his eternal heart beat? Where else but in one's own self, deep within oneself, in that indestructible something that each man bore inside him? But where? It was not flesh and bone, it was not thought or consciousness, thus the sages taught. Where, where then was it? To reach that far, to attain the ego, the self, the Atman, was there another path that was profitably to be sought? Ah, but no one pointed out that path, no one knew it, not his father, not his teachers, or the sages, not the holy sacrificial chants. I'll stop there, but you get the sense of all of these rhetorical questions come straight out of the mind of Siddhartha. And especially this wonderful ah, it's a kind of sound made by the person, not by the narrator. So the narrator here is kind of inhabiting the mental space of the character and speaking for a while in this paragraph in the voice of the character. The character's thoughts and feelings are being filtered through this third-person narration. So this writing prompt simply invites you to try this out for yourself. In free writing form, of course, these are all just initial drafts and experiments. Don't expect that the first attempt will be something totally finished and polished. Think about your protagonist, and think about a scene in your story in which that protagonist is confronted with a certain problem or conundrum or mystery or obstacle. Begin writing that paragraph in third-person narration, referring to your character as he or him. He thought this, he wondered that, she did this, she said this. But then quickly and gently, begin writing sentences that seem to be spoken by that character him or herself, as if the hand of the narrator or the writer is being taken over by that character's own thoughts. Try to write five or six or seven or eight such sentences. Write for five or ten minutes in this mode, and then as you finish the free write, try to move back out of the character's mind and back into a more objective, third-person, omniscient point of view. So you're easing into the free, indirect discourse, dwelling there for a while, then easing out of it back into third-person narration. The day I'm recording this is just a few days after the first day of autumn, and so the weather is taking that beautiful turn out of the heat of summer into the cool evenings and mornings of autumn. And so because of that, and also because we're, we're reading a German novel, I thought I would 
read one of my favorite autumn poems. It happens to be written by a fellow German, a contemporary to Hermann Hesse, Rainer Maria Rilke. This is his poem, Autumn Day, translated by Edward Snow. Lord, it is time. The summer was immense. Lay your long shadows on the sundials, and on the meadows let the winds go free. Command the last fruits to be full. Give them just two more southern days, urge them on to completion, and chase the last sweetness into the heavy wine. Who has no house now will never build one. Who is alone now will long remain so, will stay awake, read, write long letters, and will wander restlessly up and down the tree-lined streets when the leaves are drifting. I hope you enjoyed this discussion about Hesse's novel. There will be another one coming in a few days, so keep your eyes peeled for that. In the meantime, like I always say, keep writing, keep reading, keep having fun with the readings, and don't forget, you too have what it takes to become a great writer. <laughs>